Well, this is going to sound sappy, <laughs> but it didn't come just from Frozen or the or Frozen Two. You know, it's it started with Frozen, but. You know, when I go to the movies, because I've gone to some of the audience um, previews, but I've also gone just to the general um, sh shows and just to see all the the kids, you know, dressed up in the outfits and the parents, you know, even dressed up sometimes and and the fun that they're having together and the discussions that they're having after the movies and the podcasts that we're doing, we're talking about the you know, the meaning of these films and how they relate to the world. Like that's just to be part of that is, um, is something that I never, I never forget. And, and I don't take for granted. Welcome to Crossing North a podcast where we learn from Nordic and Baltic artists, scholars, and community members to better understand our world, our communities, and ourselves. Coming to you from the Scandinavian Studies Department and Baltic Studies Program at the University of Washington in Seattle, I'm your host, Colin Joya Connors. Mark Smith works for Walt Disney Animation Studios and was the director of story for Frozen 2. He first joined Disney in 1993 and has worked on Treasure Planet, Tangled, Frozen, Big Hero 6, Zootopia, and most recently, Frozen 2. Disney's Frozen was released in 2013 and quickly became a worldwide phenomenon. It won two Oscars for Best Animated Picture and Best Original Song, and became the highest-grossing animated film of its time, earning an estimated $1.3 billion worldwide. The story design and visual design for Frozen drew heavily from Scandinavia. The story was inspired by Danish author Hans Christian Andersen's The Snow Queen, the setting was inspired by the fjords of Norway, and the character costumes were inspired by the traditional dress of ethnic Norwegians and Sami people, the Bunad and the Gakti. Now, six years later, Frozen 2 has opened a great commercial and critical success, bringing in $350 million in its opening weekend alone. The new film matures with both its characters and its audiences, as the core cast from the first film encounter new and different knowledge that re-examines their actions and experiences in both Frozen films. What do you do, the film asks, when you learn the truth? Disney undertook a lot of new research for the film. The filmmakers traveled to Norway, Finland, and Iceland, and consulted with artists, scholars, and cultural experts, myself included. Many of the cultural experts who consulted on the film production were Sami, and the filmmakers signed agreements with Sami representative bodies, including the Sami parliaments and the Sami council. I sat down with Mark to discuss his role in the film and how specifically their research trip to the Nordic countries influenced the film. Before we begin, you should know that we discuss a few specific scenes, including the climax of the film. If you haven't seen Frozen 2, you'll be able to follow along just fine, but if you're still avoiding spoilers, you might want to wait to listen to this episode. All right, Mark, you're on. Hi, I'm Mark Smith. I was the director of story for Frozen 2. So what a director of story does is I work really closely with the directors of the film, in this case, Chris Buck and Jennifer Lee. And early on in the film's development, I work with them on just helping them 
to find the the story that they want to tell. Just help them dial into what it is, you know, what it is that they feel is important. And yeah, we work on that for for a little while. And my job as the movie progresses transitions into um, storyboarding the film or myself and working with a team of storyboard artists and the directors. We then take either ideas or sometimes uh, scenes that are in script form and we will visualize those in storyboard form. And then we'll watch the movie. Uh, we'll put up a whole version of the movie, take a look at it. We look at it with a big group of our peers here at the studio and um, other directors and and you know everyone in the studio really gets a chance to see it and, and send notes back to us. And we'll do this between six and 12 times on any given film. We'll remake, remake the movie, sometimes the whole thing from the ground up um, in storyboard form. And we do this, you know, try to find the story before the movie goes too far down into, into production. It's, a, it's just a really big collaboration, obviously led by our directors. And early on in the movie, we spend a lot of time just sitting in a room and talking about the potential for the film. And, you know, our songwriters are a huge part of the story. Any, any um, musical, you know, a good one anyway, the, the songs are actually really doing a lot of the heavy lifting for story. And so Bobby and Kristen were, were a huge part. And um, we would meet with them, and they're based in, in New York, but we would meet with them over the over the computer machine <laughs> and and um and we would just talk story jen would share script pages sometimes we'd have storyboards to show them sometimes they'd have ideas for a song or they would we would be talking about one particular scene and they would say hey that's starting to feel like a song and let's start developing that and so there's a big back and forth um, all the way, all across the whole you know, time that we're working on these things. But again, it's, it's very collaborative. Yeah, I've heard the Lopez's speak in interviews. It's a very collaborative process back and forth and that often they were aided in getting storyboards from you um, to help kind of flesh out the vision of where to go with the piece. Yeah, it's it really is a, a chicken and egg thing. We We... We'll sometimes have an idea and, and we'll send off an artist to just do some exploration with, you know, a theme or an idea. And and sometimes we'll take that back and just send that to Bob and Kristen and hope that it sparks something, which it usually does. And then they'll maybe write a little melody or write a whole song or write a rough version of it. And they, you know, they can record it right at their home uh, their home recording studio and one of them will actually sing it and they'll send that back to us and then we can look at it the directors can give any notes and you know if everyone's happy with it then we'll we'll have an artist myself or another artist on the team storyboard that sequence and then we look at it we show Bobby and Kristen and it goes back and forth and back and forth and and the directors and 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 you know over the course of months sometimes you know hopefully we'll get something that everyone's feeling pretty good about and then you put that as one of the small pieces in the whole of the movie well i've heard disney people say that every story begins with research could you tell me about 
what research went into Frozen 2 and maybe how is it different from the research that went into the first Frozen film? Well, I think in terms of the difference, you know, because it is, we know the characters already, the the research of at least the main characters, um, we we didn't really need to, to do much research on that other than a lot of thought and discussions about, you know, how Anna and Elsa and Kristoff and Sven and Olaf, all of them could actually go emotionally a little further, a little deeper. That was something the directors really were really excited about, um, the, the challenge of that for, for Frozen 2. As far as like the, the physical research that we did in order to find the story, we took, we took an amazing trip in 2016 and we went to, we went to Norway and then to Finland and then on to Iceland. And that was really early in the development of the movie, but it had a huge, huge impact on on where the the movie ended up becoming. We when we went to in Norway, I think, or Finland, we we went to some really amazing uh, like forests that were up very high north, um, and and they just had such an enchanted feeling to them. You really understood why. The, the the cultures there and the people there have these these tales of forest spirits and and you know like fairies and people living in the in the brush of the forest because it felt so magical there when we were there and it was pretty um, apparent that this when we were in Finland and Norway in the forest that this really felt like a fairy tale setting. And that was very much like our character, Anna, which was really interesting to us. Um, then when we got over to Iceland, Iceland was such a big, mythic, extreme, dramatic landscape. It didn't take long to start to realize, okay, this is Elsa's world. And so we started to have these thematics of fairy tale and myth you know, myth being Iceland, fairy tale being sort of the forest of Norway and Finland. And those that lined up really well with the characters that we already have with Anna in the forest and Elsa in in Iceland. Um, could you tell me about any of the places in particular or people that you uh, met on those trips? Sure. We, I mean, we, we spent um, quite a bit of time with the Sami people in, um, in Norway. And they were, you know, hugely influential by, uh, to the movie. Um, you know, we have the North Eldra people in the film, and they were greatly inspired by the Sami people, not just their clothes and the way they look, but, you know, just their, their actual stories and the way that they viewed the world and the way that they felt a, a part, as like they were a part of, of, of nature. Um, and the respect and the reverence that they had for it. That was really influence or influential. And then in, in Iceland, um, it was, you know, early on in the movie, we were thinking, well, what are the antagonistic forces for Elsa? She's so powerful. She's so, um, she can build ice castles and, and it just has this incredible raw power. And when we were in Iceland, just the landscape was so dramatic that being in the face of the awesomeness of nature there, you feel small. You feel like a, 
a little tiny person that could be killed at any second. And it, it was, I think, when we were, or at least for me, one of the moments that was the most inspiring was when we were standing on the, the uh, Black Rock Beach in Iceland and seeing the waves and how dramatic and tumultuous they were in the ocean and the wind and the the sand blowing everywhere. And I remember thinking when we were there, like, okay, there's a, now there's a formidable power that even Elsa, I think, would have, would have trouble, would have trouble dealing with. And so that really was the inspiration when we got back for a test sequence that, that we did with, that became the teaser of the film, which was Elsa, you know, sort of running out into the waves. That was inspired by that beach in Iceland. Also in Iceland, you know, we got to walk on the glacier and the glacier, you just had a sense of this awesome power and just felt that you felt the ancient energy coming out of it. It's sort of hard to describe with words, but I think everyone that was on that trip felt that. And that, that was, you know, very much an inspiration for, for Elsa, you know, going to kind of going home to, to a place like that, which it became, it became Atahala. Yeah. I think that the, the story is just really wonderful. And, um, I would say different from a lot of Disney films that I've seen before. Um, I think Disney films are, uh, famous sometimes for having some uh, very memorable heroes, but also some really memorable villains. And Frozen 1 had this great twist in which the the villain was revealed. But do you feel like there's really a villain in Frozen 2? Well, I don't think we have the typical villain in the sense that you're talking about. It's, um, there's, I think what's sometimes more interesting, or, you know, there's great villains that I love, but sometimes it's mix things up. It's nice to have the challenge of the antagonistic force be something that comes from within. Really, most of the time when you watch a movie has got a great villain, it, usually they do represent some sort of inner sort of struggle with the character. And in this one, I think we just really wanted to lean into lean into the, the challenges that, that we face just sort of inside of ourselves, you know, and, and where the, the girls are three years older, you know, in this movie than in, in the first one. And their lives are different. And we looked at, you know, where would, I think, I think Elsa's 24 and Anna's 21, I think. And um, we really thought about, well, what are the challenges that face, you know, young people at this age? And one of those things is, you know, how, like, how do you know where you where you're supposed to be, you know, how do you know you're doing the right thing with your life? You know, you're looking out at a whole life and wondering, am I heading in the right direction? That felt like enough of a, of, um, of an antagonistic force, I think for us to, to try to use that as the, as the antagonism. We also have, you know, elements of the grandfather and, you know, the sins of our fathers and, and um, those, there's just some really interesting parallels uh, to to just the real world things happening with that, and so it was. I think that was a that was an interesting sort of layer to the whole thing as well. Yeah, I, I like what you're saying. I think that illustrates the difference between fairy tales and myths. That often in fairy tales you'll have heroes and villains, but myths, and especially ancient myths, are about transitions in life 
And it's not a story of good and evil always, but it's how do you get from one step to the next in your life? And that comes with all kinds of challenges. And, and often those can be challenges that are within more than anything that is external. Yeah. I, I mean, and, and the nice thing is that we had, we had, we could do both with this because we did have Elsa, who is this mythic character that really does have to sort of figure out what her transformation is going to be. And, but we also have Anna, who very much is the fairy tale character who, who definitely believes in the happy ending, you know, believes that the dragon can be slayed, right? And um, it's nice that we have both of those sort of opposing worldviews or different worldviews that we could dramatize in the film. Well, it's good. I mean, it's, it's, it's a very relatable story. And I think that um, a lot of thing, themes that come out of it with the the girls growing older and sort of learning what it means to be a family as you get older, that you can move away and that's still okay and you can fight and that's still okay is one that speaks to a very wide audience. Um, and this is obviously, this. I mean, this story is obviously a fiction. Disney films are generally made for young audiences. But I've I've read several reviews that Notice that the film touches on real-world concerns and events right now, especially around climate change and the rights and futures of indigenous peoples, which which I think come through pretty strongly. And I'm curious, just how how purposeful was that when you're writing a story for children? Well, you know, we don't. None of us live in a vacuum. So these, these stories that come out and the you know, the challenges that our characters face are always just mirrors of the stories that that we face and the challenges that we face, you know, as a society. So I think for me to actually calculate, you know, trying to put a message in a movie or something doesn't usually work. You know, you feel it. It feels heavy-handed in that respect. And so... It's, it's usually better to me when they're just when our characters are faced with the same challenges that you know we are faced with as a society and part of the interesting of, the interesting part of it is to watch how the characters handle those challenges all right this uh, this next question is is going to be a personal one okay so prepare yourself <laughs> how many times have you drawn Olaf <laughs> how many times have I drawn Olaf Oh, I, I mean, <laughs> it would be impossible to know, but probably in the tens of thousands. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> Remember, I worked on this movie for four years, and then I also worked on the first Frozen. So, so yeah, I've done my share of Olaf's. Yeah, so, so how many years in total have you been working on Frozen? <laughs> on the franchise of Frozen or on the the Frozen world? Yeah. Uh, um, yes, exactly. I let's see. Well, four years on this movie, and I I probably I don't know exactly. I probably only worked on the first one about two, maybe two years, two or three years. <laughs> so okay. So I don't know. I'm not good at math. <laughs> Something like that. It does feel like it's been, you know, because even in the years in between, it's still. It's still around. It's still such a presence in our culture and our world, and it 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 feels like a long time. 
but I love these characters. I really do. And I, I, I did get emotional the last drawing that I did of, of the girls. Well, yeah. Um, to, to hear you talk about them, the, the characters sound very real and they sound like family spent years with them and drawn them thousands of times. Um, what do you, I mean, it, it sounds like they are always with you. Yeah, they have to be. I mean, you have to, you have to, you have to sort of fall in love with them a little bit, even though you put them through horrible, horrible things, you have to, um, sort of know them and know where they're coming from. And when you're working on a scene, you have to understand, you know, what's going on underneath in order to make sure that, that what they do is, is real and believable. And, and yeah, you feel sorry for them when, when you, when I felt, I mean, I worked on the Anna song, the next right thing. And it was very emotional because in her head, she lost her sister and she lost, Olaf and and wow, he really took her to a dark, sad place, and that was a that was a rough couple of weeks working on working on that scene because you know I, I I really care for her and I I felt I felt horrible. I I, I cry every time I see that scene. Oh. <laughs> yeah, it's actually oh. one of the scenes that I'm most proud of in the film because I I think that it really does. I think that one really does take. The movie to a place that not a lot of other films go and you know to see one of our main characters be taken so so low and you know generally at the end of a song or something you know they're back up and they're more positive but in the case of next right thing you know she is back up but she's still just sort of getting by by action it's she's not she doesn't know that 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 Elsa and Olaf will be back. So it's a, it's a, it's a unique song and I think a really powerful one to me. And I'm, I'm, I'm really proud of that moment in the film. I don't think it's just for the older people. They, you know, they have, they probably come at it from a little different place, but, but even children, you know, they, they experience sadness, they experience, you know, despair and depression and all these things. And I think, you know, to have a character that maybe they know or love be able to show them that it's okay, you know, to feel that way, that those feelings are valid, but that you still have to, you know, you know, carry on and, and, and you can still function and it will go away eventually. I think that's a good lesson, you know, for, for really for, for everyone. Um, you spend so much time with these characters. Um, what do you do when you're not thinking about Frozen? <laughs> I guess sleep. <laughs> um, well, what do I do? I mean, I, I have a family, and <laughs> we we do all the we just do all the things that families do. And the thing is, though, it's kind of hard, and they probably hate this part of things, but they are always getting pulled into whatever film I'm working on because they'll have a story or they'll have an experience and I'll be like, Oh, tell me about that. <laughs> the next day we all, you know, we, we work as a group a lot in the story room with the, the directors and all the story artists. And, and the, one of the, the wonderful parts about the job is that it is, you know, 
kind of like a big therapy session in there where we can all relate, you know, these personal stories and, and experiences that we have with our families and in our life and try to sort of assimilate those into, into the film. And, and so, so maybe the answer is there's not much time in between spent on thinking of anything else other than the film when we're working on it. Um, but that, that's not always a bad thing. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I understand that many of you are parents who worked on this film. Um, the The credits list the number of uh, new babies that were born during production, um, and it, it, the credits it's just it's very impressive just the the sheer number of people who who help out with the film for this, and to know that you're all dedicating so much time for for years. Yeah, one of the nice things about it is that you know our story rooms are made up of you know people from all ages, people that are parents, people that aren't parents, people from different countries, you know, uh, men and women and people from all different walks of life. And that's, I think, one of the sort of the, the magic of this place is that we do have so many perspectives in that room where we work on these stories and uh, so many different artists that work on them and bring their own experiences. I think that's why the movies can can go out into a world and and relate to so many people. I think I you know just heard today that 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 I, I think Frozen Two as we just as we speak right now they're estimating I think a hundred and hundred and and fifty eight million people have seen it at this point, um, and that's that's just mind boggling to me. But we do. You know, just as, and that's all over the world. We we all connect to the emotional story of these characters. So, yeah, that's that's a it's a really interesting, um, amazing, and humbling number for me to hear. It 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 absolutely is. Um, it's it's I think one of the wonderful things is being able to see that uh, you can create something that that touches so many people and can and have a a positive impact in their lives. So I was very touched to uh, the the first time I I saw it and to see my name in the credits up there and just to know that I was a small piece of of this. Well, good. Uh, <laughs> you should be proud. <laughs> it's a very good film. I am I am very proud. I I think you guys did a, a tremendous job with it. Well, thank you. It it's teamwork. You know, like as an artist, being able to work on a film or work on these movies that that can go out to 158 million people in, in the 20 some days that it's been out to, to have your work go out there, you know, and the work that you feel is meaningful and know that it's going to be seen by so many people. It's, uh, it's just, it's a, just such a gift. It's, it's like, I'm, I'm blessed and I'm grateful every day about being able to, to work on these, on these films with the people that I get to work with. And so, so that's, that's my experience here. And I, I, I wouldn't change it for the world. Crossing North is a production of the Scandinavian Studies Department and Baltic Studies Program at the University of Washington in Seattle. Today's episode was written, edited, and produced by me, Colin Joya Connors. 
Special thanks to visiting lecturer of Danish, Christian Nesbø. Today's music was used with permission by Christian Ranar Paulsen. Links to his music can be found in the show notes for this episode or on our website. Visit scandinavian.washington.edu to learn more about the podcast and other exciting projects hosted by the Scandinavian Studies Department. If you are a current or prospective student, consider taking a course or declaring a major. You can find complete course listings for the Scandinavian Studies Department and Baltic Studies program at scandinavian.washington.edu. Once again, that's scandinavian.washington.edu. So, so in academia, after you work for six years, you usually take a sabbatical to kind of recharge your batteries. Uh-huh. Do you get to do you do you get sabbaticals? Uh, I do. Yeah, I already took mine. I had I had five weeks off. It was it was wonderful. Mostly, I mostly just cleaned my garage.